Julian Baggini, an atheist himself, was writing about something and he was pointing out that there is a bleakness to all this. There becomes a meaninglessness and we're trying to fool ourselves into thinking there's actually meaning when in fact there is no actual meaning. You may have seen this happen in the UK. It was happening with the Humanist Association there and it happened also in the United States and it may have happened here in Canada as well where the humanists were actually putting a billboard campaign on the side of the double-decker buses and it said something like this. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. The whole idea here, I understand the sentiment. The sentiment was, look, there's probably no God who's out to get you and will judge you for your bad actions, so stop having so much anxiety and just, worry and just enjoy your life. That's interesting because the whole probably word, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life, actually, I make me more worried because there's probably no God. You know, I walked up in the hills of California with my family, and there's a lot of rattlesnakes up there, and there was a sign that said, rattlesnakes. So, it gets you a little bit of anxiety, but you know what you're prepared for. You know what would make me more anxious? If I saw a sign that says, there's probably no rattlesnakes. <laughs> but here's what Baggini says. Listen to him. He's an, as an atheist philosopher, this is what he writes, and he's very brutally honest. In an article called Athe A Life Can Be Bleak, Atheism is about facing up to it. He says, atheists have to live with the knowledge that there is no salvation, no redemption, no second chances. Lives can go terribly wrong in ways that can never be put right. Can you really tell the parents who lost their child to a suicide after years of depression, they should stop worrying and enjoy life? You're looking for purpose. My friend was, and in my share of loss in my life, I have been. It was Solomon who asks the same exact questions. You know, the Bible doesn't shy from these questions. It asks these questions with blunt, brute honesty because our existence is blunt sometimes, and it's brute. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of men? And what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Question he asks, who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now this is rhetorical, of course. Solomon does not believe that we're all just meaningless. In Ecclesiastes, he talks about the meaninglessness or the seeming meaninglessness of life, but comes to the conclusion that it actually does have significance and meaning. What I want to show you is that there are four components, I think, of this existence that point to significance and meaning in life. We're gonna race through a couple of them because time runs short and I wanna to get to your questions. Please be thinking of them or texting them in because honestly, my favorite part of the whole event will be hearing your voice and having, hearing what you have to say and, and, the, and the depth of your question. And my colleague Nathan and I will be very eager to engage with you respectfully and meaningfully on these issues. But there are four parts of this, I think. When Solomon asked the question, here's the interesting thing. When Dawkins is asked the question, when Krauss is asked the question, when Begini himself asked the question of a blind, pitiless, indifferent universe, you know what is the response? A yawning chasm of nothingness. When Solomon asked the question, he's asking it of God, the one who creates all of this, and the only one who's capable of actually giving an answer. What is the answer? The first is this. I think there's a clue to meaning in the idea of purpose. 
that we do have a purpose. How do you know this? Why are, you know, are we just the flotsam and jetsam, the cosmic pollution, or is there indications of purpose? I think when you can look to the physical world, you can actually see what Peter Berger calls the signals of transcendence. I love that phrase, it's like a crystalline phrase, signals of transcendence. What he's saying is, is that when you look out into the universe or even into the DNA of a human being, you begin to see elements of design, specified complexity, or choices were made. You know, the, si the standard model for Big Bang cosmology is that the universe began to exist. There was a finite point in the past when time, matter, or time, energy, and space began to exist. Now, for the longest time, scientists thought that the universe was in a steady state. It always existed. It was through the work of folks like Hubble and folks like Einstein and Stephen Hawking and uh, Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin, where they actually come about and say, look, we understand now that the universe had a beginning in the finite point in the past. This is actually what the Bible specifically says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you have a beginning to every material thing, the thing that begins it has to be spaceless, timeless, material, uh, immaterial, not made up of matter, and has more energy than the combined energy of the entire universe. What does that sound like? And it made choices. When you look at the way the universe is designed for the, for the existence of life, and you see the way that the distances of planets relative to the sun allows our planet to be in exactly the habitable zone, the way distant, distant bodies of celestial bodies, whether they're stars or quasars or nebulae, whatever it might be, pull on our solar system, put us exactly where we should be so that we can have life. Jupiter acts as a cosmic vacuum cleaner, sucking up large objects in the, in the solar system and in the universe to keep them from crashing into us. It looks like, to quote one uh, Frederick Hoyle, I believe it was, who says, it looks like someone's been monkeying with the physics. <laughs> Not a Christian saying that. In fact, at one point, Hawking himself said that there were 40 properties, now there are something like 200 properties about the universe that looked like they were finally attuned for the existence of human life or some kind of life within the universe. So you look telescope-ward, you look outward for the design of the universe, you look inward from the microscope to see the design of human beings. And it was Francis Collins, who was the former head of the National Institutes of Health, um, um, uh, and the co-mapper of the human DNA. He mapped the human genome, and when he discovers how long it actually is and how specified the complexity of this DNA actually is, he says this in his book, The Language of God. This is one of our top scientists in North America. He says that this cryptic four-letter cryptic code is 1.4 billion bits of information, 1.3 billion bits of information long. 1.3 billion bits of information. There are some colleges in this, in, in the, on this continent that don't have that much information in their graduate libraries. One DNA strand in your body has 1.4 billion bits of information. If you printed out the four-letter code that basically comprises DNA on normal bond paper and stacked it up, it would be 550 feet tall. One DNA molecule. And you have trillions of them. It is the language of God for creating a human being. You see the specificity within each one of us. Now, you look and say, well, maybe evolution, maybe neuroscience can explain all things. Maybe we're just chemical machines. And as one atheist I, I heard uh, during a debate say, we're just meat computers. Um, 
uh, others would say this as well. But then you look at someone like Thomas Nagel, who's an atheistic philosopher, and he says that in his book, Mind and Cosmos, he says evolution, Darwinian evolution, which he believes actually happened, he says, but evolution cannot explain human consciousness, morality, and these kinds of things. Raymond Tallis, himself a neurosurgeon, he died in the wool atheist, who has to defend himself against other atheists all the time because he's saying the same thing. In his book, Aping Mankind, he says, neither neuroscience nor Darwinian evolution, both of which he believes, neither one of these two things can actually explain human consciousness and our ability to rationally think, have imagination and emotion. None of these things are explained by the two things that are only, only games in town other than God. In fact, Talis says this, the idea of what we are, trying to figure out what we are, are we just sophisticated computers or are we exceptionally gifted chimps? He says this question is probably the most important question to find out what we are. And he thinks there's more to us than being simply meat computers or exceptionally gifted chimps. Are we more than just propagators of DNA? Do we just respond to external stimuli? I think the evidence from design of the universe to the design of our bodies actually shows us that choices were made. It isn't just like God decided to create the world, wind it up and say, let's see what happens. As some might say, no, choices were actually made so that life could exist on this planet and so that you specifically can exist on this planet. And there's a purpose in it all, and I'll get to that in a moment. But you see the design, which implies that there's a purpose to all this. But then you go to the second part of how you get meaning, and that's significance. The significance of what we do. Is what we do meaningless? Are we just random collocations of atoms bumping into each other at random, as some might say? You know, you look at Sam Harris, one of the leading atheists in the world right now, very popular and very, very articulate atheist. He says basically, he writes a book called Free Will where he argues we have none. Uh, we're just chemical machines that bump into each other all the time. Uh, and we respond to external stimuli and these kind of things. But then you look at others who would say, no, that there's actually more to it than all that. Raymond Tallis, for example, would take exception to that. There would, be any, there would be no real significance, no lasting significance to what we do because according to the laws of thermodynamics, the universe is grinding down to a heat death. All the energy in the universe will be dissipated across the entire universe and eventually everything will stop moving. It'll be a flat, featureless disk. So whatever you do, whoever you help now, well, they'll be dead one day and then their descendants will all be dead one day, and then their descendants will be dead one day too, and eventually it's all gonna end because you can't stop the grinding down of the universe. It eventually has no meaning. It might have these sort of punctuated meaning, points of meaning, but ultimately those meanings all fade away too. Or is there more? If there's an eternity, then those things don't fade away. They actually last. Your actions actually last and echo into eternity, as it were. You know, I was, um, when I was in law school, we had to read these um, opinions by a very famous jurist, one of the most brilliant jurists in the history of American jurisprudence. His name is Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. A brilliant, brilliant man by all accounts, absolutely brilliant. He would write some of the most thoughtful, well-reasoned opinions that were there. Agree or disagree, you had to contend with his brilliance. And I remember reading his opinions in school and marveling at the genius of this man. And then when I was writing briefs, I would have to cite him because, he, even if he wasn't in my jurisdiction, I would cite him because he's so persuasive. And then I saw a YouTube video where someone asked him to describe his judicial philosophy. And this is what he says. We're just monkeys with big brains, period. That was a letdown. 
I remember thinking to myself as I watched that video, do you really believe that? Is that what you really believe? Is if we're just monkeys with big brains, how are you possibly a jurist called to the noble calling of trying to decide the affairs among people, men and women, trying to make sure that there's fairness between everybody? How are you part of this noble, noble calling instead of just being a zookeeper, keeping the monkeys from biting each other? In other words, does your job really have any significance? When you go to work, does it do anything? Does it mean anything? We were sitting across the table from a friend who uh, was, was someone who believed in God but then became an atheist, uh, very, very contributing to all kinds of causes himself, doing wonderful work across uh, in Africa, helping people uh, with uh, their physical needs. And we were sitting across the table from him, and my wife asked him this wonderful question. It seems cliche, but it's actually one of the best questions you could ask a person. She said, hey, what gets you up in the morning? What, like, what, what, what inspires you? And magnanimously, he said, people. People are my purpose. People inspire me. To which I had to respond, why? Like, he said, what do you mean, why? I'm like, well, why? I mean, seriously, why? Why not just amass a bunch of stuff and a bunch of wealth and just be done with it? Why? Why spend money on other people? I mean, I was glad he did, by the way, but he looked at me and he didn't understand. I said, well, let me ask you this question. You're a physician. He was a doctor. So you're a physician. Are you a physician or are you a mechanic? Because if you think we're just chemical machines, all you are is an overly expensively educated mechanic working on very, chemical, very complex machines that break down. I said, are you a physician or are you a mechanic? He said, no, I'm a physician. Like, that only makes sense to me if people have purpose beyond the physical. We had an excellent conversation afterwards because I think he wanted to see that his life and his work had more significance than just being working on somebody. And by the way, if you're a mechanic, your life has more significance. You're not just working on cars or HVAC systems, whatever it might be. You're doing something that contributes beyond yourself. And not just a society that eventually itself will one day die. Your work actually echoes into eternity if there's a God, and I think that's true. It was Tolstoy who said this, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? You see, if there is no transcendence to us, if there's nothing beyond this life and there's no significance to our actions in eternity, then justice is just an illusion. Hitler and Mother Teresa end up in the same place, oblivion. But if there's something beyond us, then all this actually does, in fact, really matter. I was watching a movie called Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. And there was this guy who was giving a talk. He was an older man. He was dying of cancer. He's on video. And he said uh, his philosophy of life was we're just mustard burps, momentarily tangy and then gone with the wind. That's a gross way to say life is meaningless. Are we more than that? Are we momentarily tangy? Or is there something more? It's not about being useful to other people, though. This is under, understand this. I'm not trying to say that you need to be useful to other people to have meaning and significance. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. I think I know what he's trying to get at there, but if you take it too far, then that means that no life where you can't think for yourself is worth living. How about a three-year-old? They can't examine their own life. Is their life worth living? Of course it is. You saw people on the video who said, I haven't thought about that. Was their life worth living just because they haven't thought about it for a while? I think it is. Socrates is trying to say it's worth talking about these things, but he's not saying your life is not worth living if you don't think about it. He's not an existentialist. Yeah, this movie Braveheart, you remember this, the scene where he's gonna die, uh, be put to death, 
And he looks at the woman who's trying to say, I have a plan, if only you could live. If you just do this, you could live. And he says, not every, he says every man dies, but not every man truly lives. What he's trying to say there is not you will truly live if you're useful. He's not saying that, because think about this. If we mean that, then we have to do something splashy or significant or well-meaning or have kids, have a spouse, whatever it is, to fill the yawning chasm of meaninglessness. It seems to me that if you have to jam life full of experiences to make it worth living or even to claim to really have lived, then perhaps it's because those things are thrown into the yawning hole of emptiness that we feel over and over again. Like the lady said on the video, to like, we think about these things when we see all the beautiful Facebook posts that keep on, why aren't I doing what they're doing? The reality is, you know, where, you, know where, you know what those pictures come from when you see them on Facebook or you see them on Instagram? You know where those moments come from? All the wonderful moments come from? All the hard moments in between that no one posts about. Yeah. That's a life worth living. Those hard moments, those are significant because the good moments are signposts to something greater. Something greater. We're all looking for something. We call it, my, we're looking for my place in this world. Well, we're looking for my place in this world, essentially, because we're looking for a place somewhere else. Could it be that the things we fill our lives with and we post on Facebook or whatever it might be, could it be that those things are the expressions of exhilaration somewhere in our minds and our hearts, no matter what our worldview is, could it be that those are expressions of exhilarations, not about a life that we hope has meaning, but about a life that we know has meaning because there's a transcendence that gives us significance. If you're a doctor, what you do in this life echoes in eternity. If you're a judge, what you do in this life echoes into eternity. If you're a mechanic, what you do in this life echoes into eternity. If you're a mother or a father or a brother or whatever it is you do, the Bible says you do all these things under the glory of God. In other words, you are not doing something insignificant no matter how small it actually is. It all matters. Purpose, significance, wonder, and imagination. We're looking for our place, we're wondering what our place might be, and I'm sure some of you have done this, especially when you're kids. Somehow we have this when we're kids and we lose it when we're adults because we get so busy. But you can remember doing this, right? When you were a teen especially, when there's a party going on and maybe you weren't invited or maybe you were invited and you got sick of it or bored or you, all the things happen in your life and you sit there and you're listening to Complaint Rock or whatever it is you're listening to, and you look out across the stars and you think to yourself, I wonder what this is all about. I wonder what's going on. What does life have in store for me? Our place in the universe is one of those things. By the way, when you think about it, we're placed in, a, in the universe exactly, I don't know if you know this, but our Milky Way galaxy is a spiral galaxy of these, these spiral dust and star armbands. Our universe, uh, sorry, our solar system is placed not inside one of those spirals, but in the dark matter in between. If we were in the spirals, we wouldn't be able to see the visible universe because our sky would be completely white. We happen to be exactly in the spot in our galaxy where we can see the most of the universe possible from our vantage point. You might call that coincidence, but we also happen to be one of the only planets around, and probably the only planet around in my view, with life on it that could actually wonder about stuff and look at things out there. Think about this. Platypuses don't sit around thinking about what Saturn's rings are made of. 
They don't care about what the sun's core is made of or how cytoplasm actually works. They don't care about any of this stuff. And they get along just fine without knowing that. They reproduce at a fine rate. Apes do it, mollusks do it, mushrooms do it. They don't care, they don't wonder about these things because all they wanna do is keep procreating. You know why? They're DNA propagators, that's what they do. Why do we care about these things? If other animals do just fine without knowing these things, why do we care? It doesn't help us evolutionarily. It doesn't help us with that, but it does talk about our ability to think outside, of a connectedness to something beyond ourselves. C.S. Lewis said that reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the natural organ of meaning. When you look out there and you imagine, am I connected to something greater? You know, there's this movie, Contact. Have you seen this movie? A lot of movie references today. Um, <laughs> it's this book, a movie based on a book by Carl Sagan, who was an agnostic, and he always had this, this struggle between science and faith, and science and faith, and all these things. Well, the main protagonist, the semi-autobiographical, this movie, is a fiction movie, but it's semi-autobiographical, talking about his struggle. And at the end of the movie, there's, uh, the, the protagonist is giving a, kids a, a tour of the very large array. And there's a kid who asks a question, is there a life out there on other planets? And she looks down at him and she says, what do you think? He says, I don't know. She goes, oh good, a skeptic, I like that. She says, I'll tell you what, the universe is bigger than anything anyone's ever imagined. So if it's just us, it's an awful waste of space. That's a curious way to look at it. I understand what that sentiment, but that's a curious way to look at it. When you look at the way the universe is vastly displayed and arrayed, many scientists, many scientists I know who are physicists out of Caltech and other places will tell you, the vastness of the universe actually contributes to our little, our little ball, our little blue ball here. This ball is possible because the universe is so vast. But I also think about the art art artistry of the universe. The fact that we, are yet, we have yet to discover so much. God has given us this beautiful tapestry to explore. Maybe it's not a waste of space. Maybe God is not trying to always be engineer-like in his efficiencies. Maybe he's an engineer with a paintbrush. And he gives us that sense of wonder to be connected to something outside of ourselves. And that brings me to the, the fourth and final part of meaning. You have purpose, the design. You have significance, that what we do matters. You have the ability to wonder about your connectedness. And then you actually have the connectedness. We are incurably relational beings, human beings. We are. And we're not hive-like. We're not like bees or ants or herd animals that get together for safety. We're relational. We actually have connections with people. We want, protect, covet, mourn the loss of relationships. That's what we do. That's what we do all the time. Now, we are the effect. We are contingent beings. Something else explains us. Now, if there was an uncaused cause, but that cause was blind, pitiless, and indifferent, it had no relationship in and it of itself. We you know, sort of burped out of existence from the universe. Why should we want relationships so badly? Hive mentalities, I get that, but we want relationships. Maybe the reason why we, as the effect, want relationships is because the being who created us, the cause, is a being who defines relationship. Here's what I mean. In the Christian message, it's not just any God that creates us, it's the triune God who creates us. One God who exists as one in his nature, one what, with three distinct minds, within the one what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father, and on it goes in the eternity of the community of the Trinity. He's a God who defines relationship. 
And so the God who defines relationship creates a universe that desires relationship. You are the effect and you reflect the cause. Nothing else can explain it, I think, about why we are the way we are. It also explains something about God himself. God has perfect relationship within the Trinity. So here's the question, why create you? Why make, make you and me to mess it up? Why do that? You know why? Because there's a selflessness in that creation. When the God who is the, 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 the being in relationship has perfect relationship within himself, and then he creates you and create me, he doesn't create me so that he can have relationship, he's not lonely. He creates me so that I can have relationship. It's a gift, selfless. He's not more God because I exist, but I have the chance to know him. Connectedness. But as we search for relationships in this world, we seek to be understood. We try our hardest to be understood. And oftentimes some of the vitriol that happens between all of us and the bumping we do and the anger and the angst and the loss, it's all because we're not understanding each other. But there is one who understands us. It was Thomas Bracken who wrote that poem, Not Understood, where he says, not understood, we move along asunder, our paths grow wider as the seasons creep. Along the years we marvel and we wonder why life is life and then we fall asleep. Not understood. Not understood how many cheerless breasts are aching, how many noble spirit, um, uh, uh, um, how many hearts are breaking uh, day by day, how many lonely hearts are breaking, how many noble spirits pass away. Not understood. And then he says this, O oh God, that men would draw, uh, would see a little clearer, or judge less harshly when they cannot see. O oh God, that men would draw a little nearer to one another, they would draw nearer to thee, and then be understood. Everyone in this room longs to be understood on something. You all do. We all do. Only one truly understands you. Only one does. Your sense of desire for connectedness leads to that. You know, I travel a lot for a living, and so I, I, I work in a lot of hotels, and I always have background noise on when I work. I can't work in total silence because I have three kids, and when I work at home, and the three kids are in the home, and it's total silence, that means somebody knocked somebody unconscious. <laughs> so I have to go look to see what's going on, right? So I had to have background noise. I was one in, in a hotel, before I got Spotify, I had a hotel uh, that I was in, I was looking for a TV station to be on the background noise so I wouldn't be too distracted by it, and I continued my work. Well, I came across a TV show, Everybody Loves Raymond. Have you seen this show? And um, you know this premise, the father's bumbling all the time, and the, the wife yells at him until he fixes it, and then he fixes it. Um, well, in this particular episode, his daughter asks him a question. She says, where do babies come from? And he's like, oh man, he messes it up. He says something about storks or something, something ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> but then his wife yells at him and says, Ray, you gotta fix that. You can't have her believe that because she's gonna find the truth out from someone else. And when she finds the truth out from someone else, she won't trust us anymore. So for the whole half hour of the show, he tries to figure out what to say to her. So he goes up into her room, he sits down at her bed, and he sits down next to her, and he says, honey, you asked where babies come from. Well, you see, when a man and a woman love each other, they get married and they come together. And she goes, whoa, 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 stop, stop. Don't say one more word, please. I know all that already. I wanna know, why does God put us here? It's a meaning of life question, right? The one that you know, Forrest Gump finds when he runs across the United States three times. Or we have to climb up mountains where the guy with the eyebrows that won't quit tells us finally what our meaning of life actually is. Um, and what, he, what, what is his response? This is what he says. He says, uh, God puts us here because heaven is crowded. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it's ridiculous because you know why we always say the meaning of life? I don't know what it is, and they even said it in the video. You know what it is? It's gonna sound horribly presumptuous of me, but I think it does summarize in one sentence. 
It's this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and delight in his presence forever. Delight in his presence forever. Relationship, that is what we're here for. Psalm 139 does not say you were built, does not say you were manufactured or even designed. It says you were knit together in your mother's womb. When I say that word knit, what do you think of? You think of an elderly person, usually a grandmother, sitting at a chair doing whatever they do when they knit. You know, my mother knitted for me something before I was even born. It's my prized possession. It's this little purple sweater. When she was pregnant with me, she knit it together to bring me home in the hospital, from the hospital in that, in that little sweater. When she was doing that knitting, she was thinking, my boy, my son, Abdu. I brought all my kids home in the same sweater from the hospital. Intimacy, you were not manufactured, you were knit. I think the science begins to show it, the Bible begins to tell it. The Bible calls you God's workmanship. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, it calls you his workmanship. Do you know what that word actually is in the Greek? It's poema. You know what word we get from that? Poem. You are God's poetry. Quite literally his poetry. The hope for that kind of intimacy and connection does not come from human relationships. It comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. It really does. You see, we broke that relationship. We were meant to have relationship and we broke it because of our rebelliousness and there's a debt you owe to God and then he says, you cannot pay it. You can't possibly pay it back because you've committed an eternal thing against me. An eternal debt is owed to me. Only an eternal one can pay it. And so he sends his son, he pays the price for you and for me, paying a debt you can't possibly pay and living a life you can't possibly live and then rising from the dead to give you life. That's the gospel message, to bring intimacy back. That's why why the Bible talks about faith, hope, and love persisting in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, read at every, almost every single wedding there ever is, 1 Corinthians 13, about faith, hope, and love. I was talking to somebody from the Soviet Union, from the former Soviet Union, actually. He um, was born in Belarus, and he lived there, and he asked me what my daughter's name was. We were at a party together, and my daughter was running around. He says, what's your daughter's name? I said, Nadia. He says, Nadia, that's an, it's a, it's an Eastern European Russian name. I said, well, it travels. It's Lebanese, too. He um, says, you know what it means in uh, Russian? It means hope. I said, really? He said, you know what the most, three most common names in Soviet Russia, in intentionally atheistic, hopeless, long breadlines Russia was? The three most common names among girls were Vera, Nadyazhda, and Lubov, faith, hope, and love. They persist because we desire the connection even when we try to sever it. So we come back to my friend and his question how can I know this God values me or my mother when he let her die of cancer when I was 10? The first thing you do is you pray. The second thing you do is you sympathize. Don't give him a bunch of argument. You sympathize. And then I said, I said, this is what I said. I said, you know, we've been talking for a while now and we agreed that it's possible that God could allow some suffering for a greater possible good. There could be meaning in this. And you agreed, he said, yeah. I said, you know, it's a nice theory. It's just a theory, that's all it is. And anybody can tell you that, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, some Buddhists, um, other people can tell you that, you know, God works mysteriously. It's a theory, it's all it is, it's not gonna bring you comfort. He says, it doesn't. I said, good. I have one more thing to add to it though. It's not just theory for me, it's history for me. 
that God allows suffering for a greater possible good because as a matter of actual provable history, Jesus died on the cross. God sent his own son. He let his own son undergo suffering, not for some theoretical good, but for the greatest good that could possibly be, the salvation of the entire world. Suffering does produce something good. He offered that to your mother, I said, and he offers that to you today. And he said, you asked me one more question about value and meaning. How do you know how valuable something is? You know how valuable something is by what you're willing to pay for it. And as a matter of objective truth, I told him, your mother has infinite value because the infinite God paid an immeasurable price to spend an eternity with her. He offers that to you, and he said, that is worth thinking about. Solomon asked the question, where are we all going? Jesus answers Solomon's question about whether we're just animals or we're something more than that. He answers it in words. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He didn't just say it. He put his money where his mouth was. And he proved it. He showed you, not just told you, you have meaning. We'll take your questions. God bless you. Thank you, Abdu. Thank you. We have Nathan Betts with us here as well. And, uh, Thanks, brother. Abdu, I don't know I Nathan. No, you yeah. Abdu, I don't know Nathan. You know him. You introduce him. Okay. Tell, us, tell us something about him. Okay. Well, he's a dashingly handsome man. He is um, a dashingly handsome man. Um, Nathan is uh, actually uh, part of the RZM speaking team. He's a traveling apologist all over the world. And he speaks on youth, culture, the intersection of culture and faith and does a great job actually heading up our Youth Apologetics Initiative and uh, speaks, um, he's, he's tried to get, a, get his first book out there and so do pray for that, that uh, to, to come to fruition, but he's an excellent speaker and a really great friend. Nathan, you're a Canadian. Where are you from in Canada? I'm originally, actually, the other side of the country, uh, born and raised in St. Catharines. So what I uh, usually say, even though I'm based now in Seattle, uh, I'm still Canadian, born, born and bred, and it, so if you prick my skin, I still bleed maple syrup. So, uh, Favorite no, mistake, hockey, no mistake on that. Favorite hockey team, Nathan. Oh, be careful with man, this, this one. Is, see, this is we very, want them to like him. You yeah, understand no, that, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah, you don't have friends. to answer that. Um, oh, you, don't have, you better not answer Look, let me, that. Let me go a safer route, okay? Because I'm an apologist. I, I'm go through the back door and say my favorite baseball team. Is the Toronto, Toronto Blue Jays. Blue Jays. Okay, Can't we have wrong. some questions. And uh, you said, Abdi, this is your favorite part of the evening, and I believe that. We have two mics, and you can start now lining up uh, behind the mics, and uh, as well, you can text your question. You can text your question uh, with the information on the screen in the back. We are going to have Jack questions. Jack, just a question. We don't want to hear your thoughts or your uh, preamble that goes on and on. Just a brief Jack question. Question, just a question. We have a handsome young just man here. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, you have a question, sir? I do have a question. First, I want to say thank you very much to Abdu for showing up here on Saturday to be with a uh, you know, famous imam here in Calgary. Oh, uh, the, my question is, could you explain briefly the DNA of Islam for what's happening in Pakistan at the very moment about Asia Bibi? 
who has been released from jail, mm -hmm. the DNA of violence in Islam. Mm. So a, a hard one to start, thank you. Um, <laughs> Nathan will be happy to answer it. Uh, <laughs> it, it. It's a great question, but it is a difficult one because once, sometimes when you, when you answer these questions, you begin to alienate people because there's a blame that happens on a religious system or on people themselves. One of the things that hallmarks the Middle East or the East in general is that religion is not just a matter of I ascribe to a label. It is who you are. It becomes a way of life for you as well. A friend of mine, uh, actually, I, I know him from his work, and we've done some, uh, you know, uh, some things uh, similar to each other. But he says this. He says, if you were to draw a square with a dot in the middle, in the West, the square is you, and the dot is religious identity. It's a very small part of who you are. In the East, it's exactly the opposite. In the East, the square is religious or communal identity, and the dot is you. You're a very small part of a larger community. So what ends up happening is when you challenge someone's faith or you say something wrong about their worldview, you're actually indicting them. It's a part of their identity as well. So it's very, very tricky terrain to actually do this. Now, if you look at some things that happen in certain religious systems, and of course, Christianity had its own sort of rough spots as well. When you look at some of the things that happen, Especially in the modern age, it becomes surprising. Why all the oppression and all these things? And if you know the facts of the age of BBK, you'd be thinking, well, what was the issue there exactly? The uproar that's happening in Pakistan, I think, and I'd be interested to know what um, uh, the Imam uh, Sayyid al-Hadi would have said in response to that as well. It's a great question, because he's from there. Uh, I think he would be appalled about what's happening. I think he's actually voiced that publicly. He's appalled. Mm -hmm. And the good news is most Muslims are appalled by it, but some are not. One of the reasons is, is because um, as a intensely communal religion, any dissent is considered dissent against everybody. And so there's, uh, so there's a vitriol, an anger, a hatred that comes out of, the, out of that as well. But the question we have to ask ourselves, whether it's Islam, whether it's any other belief systems, and now we're doing it in the West. By the way, shame and honor cultures in the East are, are almost like becoming, coming in second to the way we do it here in the, in the West. We shame people the same way, we just do it electronically. Um, uh, what happens there is that you have a worldview that sometimes is so opposed to opposing views that you have to shut them down violently. So the question you have to ask yourself, I don't care what your worldview actually is, if your worldview becomes so fragile that you can't have dissension without violence, then you have to re-examine whether your worldview, your worldview is actually strong enough to withstand that kind of scrutiny. And I think in some strands of Islam, it becomes very, very difficult to withstand that kind of scrutiny, and so it results in that. But here in the West, we get to talk about it, and actually speak about it, and disagree if we have to, and we can disagree without being disagreeable. Abdu, thank you. Here's a question that's come uh, through our text apparatus. I am a Muslim, and I believe in the existence of God. Mm -hmm. But still, I feel, bo I feel bored and meaningless. Why is that? Well, that's an extremely honest question. If you texted that, I want to commend you for your honesty on that. And there are times when, by the way, everyone feels that way at some point. The thing about God, and belief in God. You have two ways to look at it. You have belief in God, you know, whatever that might mean to you, and then you have belief in the person. You, have, you believe God, which is a relationship with him. 
One of the reasons why I think that the, the, board, the, the boredom or the meaninglessness actually pertains even in a system where you have sort of a distance from God is because Christianity is one of the only religious systems in the world, and I would say the only robust one, that actually explains what it means to have relationship with God. You know, one of the, the, the way you look at God in Islam, depending on which strand you are, if you're a Sufi, for example, you have some, some mystical ideas about it, but most orthodox views on Islam are that God is master, you are slave, and that's as far as it goes. In fact, heaven, you don't get to be with God, you get to go to God's paradise, but God is omnipresent, but not imminently present. He's not with you. And so, naturally, I think there would be this desire for a sense of connection, which is one of the reasons why I think God actually interacts with Muslims and Easterners, in, whether it's Hindus or Muslims, whatever it might be, through dreams. He breaks in because we all have a desire for connection. And maybe it is, and I would suggest this to you, if that's you, if you believe in God, and I know you do because you said you did, there is a relationship that can be had. God actually says he does condescend. In Islam, he does not condescend to have a relationship with us. In fact, he doesn't even speak to the prophets directly. He speaks to them through angels in Islam. But in the gospel, he speaks to us specifically. In fact, the gospel says in Hebrews, in Hebrews it says, in various times and in diverse ways, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us through his son. He speaks to us through his son. You can know what God is like because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and you can have relationship with him today if you want. Your boredom, I promise you, will go away. Your meaningless, I promise you, will melt. Will despair always go away? No, but God promises to walk through it with you. Whoever this is, if you feel such a need to overcome this, I urge you to come talk to us. I think there's an answer and it's answer in the person of and, Christ. And that, mm. this, yeah, mm. thank you. I mean. And um, let me just uh, just add one uh, one footnote to that. I think that's so beautiful. Uh, and I think when I think of the person of Jesus, when you contrast what you see in Islam and really any other system of belief to the person of Jesus, the words, if you just do a word study of what happens when people encounter Jesus Christ, when they see a miracle, when they see healing, when they hear his teaching, the two words that are most often used to describe those moments are the words amazement and astonishment. You will never see anyone using the word or anything close to the word of being bored when they encounter Jesus. The words most frequently used are amazement and astonished or marveled. They saw, you know, Peter encountering Jesus in Luke 5, he was amazed, he was astonished. Amazement and astonishment fill the pages of the Gospels when people encounter Jesus. So yes. the beautiful thing of Christianity is that it encourages us to ask questions. So for that person who's bored, Jesus invites us, invites you to explore him, ask him the questions. But when you find him, historically speaking, you're in a long line of people who will find that encounter to be amazing, wonderful, astonishing. That's, that's so Thank beautiful. You. Thank Christianity. you for that, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. Please feel free. Please feel free to come to the mics. Uh, we have next person here. Yes, ask your okay. question. Yeah. Hi, Andrew Pollock of Calgary. Um, I'm just wondering in your work, how do you combine the communication side with the technical side, because, you know, it was very helpful to me that, well, decades ago I encountered people like Alvin Plantinga in his works, uh, yeah. and, or William Lane Craig, you know, in person as well, but because they deal with things technically, and a lot of atheists are technically sophisticated, they're not trying to be silly, they just honestly disagree, but they have very technical questions that they genuinely care about. So how do you deal with the combination? Because 
If you gave a technical talk, some of your audience, that's not where they're at. On the other hand, if you give a non-technical talk, they're going to be, anyway, some philosophy yeah. profs there who have genuinely more technical questions than you've addressed. So yeah. how do you deal with that helpfully? Sure. Thanks. Good question. Thank you. Go first. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a great question, by the way. Thank you for asking that. I think um, I will speak from just, I think, in our vocation, in our job, so much of what we do as a ministry, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries is, you know, the tagline that Ravi Zacharias often uh, says is that we're trying to help the thinker believe and helping the believer think. And what that means is we want to engage both the head and the heart. And what you see, uh, this in a way is not uh, an exclusive thing to uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries in a sense. We're, uh, we see this as a Christian a distinctively Christian idea, a Christian practice, that when you look to the person of Jesus, he's not only engaging the mind. He does. If you see Jesus in conversations, one of the reasons why Jesus is such a brilliant conversationalist is because he asks questions. Do you notice that? Do you notice how Jesus, when he's asked questions, he, he responds with a question? Now, one of our uh, colleagues, our international director uh, named Michael Ramsden, he often says, look, if you're a skeptic and you're reading through the Gospels, you might actually mistake Jesus to be a politician because he's always responding to a question with a question. But what's he doing there? What's Jesus doing there when he asks a question to a question? He's probing. He's wanting a conversation, but he's making people think. And questions enable the conversations to be civil, but they enable us to think when we're having conversations. But also what you see is people, with Jesus not only engaging the head, but also engaging the heart. You see, he's not only after making people think, he's after their heart, changing their heart. One of the lines that we, uh, we heard last evening, yesterday evening, is Jesus came to this world not just to make bad men good, but to make dead men live. And that's the problem. The problem is the human heart. It's not that we need to get smarter, we need to know more. No, that's, that's not it. And even the information, the information is a means by which we are formed. It's formational. The stuff that Jesus is delivering is not just for the sake of information. The information is a means by which we are shaped. So I think what we do as a ministry, what Abdu was saying this evening, is indicative, I think, of the larger Christian practice of engaging both the head and the heart. And that practice is reflective. It's a reflection of who Jesus is, one who so beautifully engaged both the head and the heart and invites us into that relationship. Thank you. I would say, let me just append uh, to it a little bit here. Because the heart of your question actually deals with how do you actually begin to bridge certain gaps? Because some people want technical information, some people want more existential information. I think everybody wants it to bridge at least some point because it's not just intellectual curiosity. You know, we're not all Mr. Spock, and we're not all crying babies. We're, we're emotional beings and we're logical beings, and there's a bridge that happens. The Apostle Paul's words are so clear here. In fact, I base my entire ministry on this passage of scripture. In Colossians chapter four, verses five and six, Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. You know what he means? He doesn't mean like be efficient and get out of there as fast as possible. What he means is find out what they actually care about. You are pointing it out. Some want technical responses, some want philosophical, some want whatever. Find out which one it is. And then he says, letting your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. In other words, make them wish that you were talking more. But you know how you do that? Oftentimes by listening. And then he says this, so you may know how you ought to answer each question. person. He doesn't say question. Person. 
This is the important part. This is the, this is the key. You are not to answer questions. Never answer a question. Never answer a question. Always answer a person. Paul says that, how you ought to answer each person. Questions don't need answers. Issues don't need answers. Problems don't need answers. People need answers. They use questions, issues, and problems to get their answers, but they want the answers that matter to them relevantly in some way. So Paul says, find out what they care about and answer them on that level. If it's technical, get technical. If it's personal, get personal. Oftentimes, it's both. And you can only do that by listening. Good job. Thank you for that. Good, sir. Yes, good evening. We got to see you. Can I, can I be able to ask two questions? Yeah, for you, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, my first question is, uh, is, is God justice? Is God justice? Yes. Okay, we'll answer that, and then we'll come back to your second question. Yeah, is God justice? Yes. No, God is just. It's just, yes. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, the way how you explain he gives his son, I have four. If yeah. I give one for somebody else's uh, mistakes, how there can be justice? Oh yeah, great question. So how can God, how can the crucifixion of Jesus be justice in some way? Uh, it's an excellent question. I used to ask that question all the time and I would challenge people, how can you tell me this is just, you know, and how, this, how does this work? Um, a couple of ways I think we actually think about this is first, um, justice is about fairness, essentially. God will always be just. He will be maximally just. He will never be less than fully just, right? He will also never be less than fully merciful. Because if God is the greatest being, he can never compromise in any way that he is. If he becomes less than just, well, then he is less than perfect. If he becomes less than merciful, he's less than perfect. So the question becomes, how is he both without compromising either? So the question is, is if he just forgives someone's sins because they're sorry about it, well, then he's fully merciful. But he's not fully just, because justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. They're opposite ends of a spectrum, so how can he bridge the gap between both? So if he gives you mercy and doesn't do anything about it, or your sin, well then he's not being just. But if he gives you justice, you're not gonna get into heaven, he's not gonna be merciful. So the cross is actually the bridge between justice and mercy. But how is it just exactly? I think it goes this way. As a lawyer, I can tell you there's a concept in the law that we have all across, uh, most common law, all common law jurisdictions that I'm aware of. It's called um, uh, imputation or the law of uh, guarantors. For example, a company can be liable for the acts of its employees. So it's called vicarious liability. We do this all the time. It's not considered unfair, even a little bit. If an employee does something wrong while acting on behalf of the company, that company is held liable and it's not unjust. You're shaking your head, but it's not unjust. I, nowhere in the system of law do you find anyone saying, that's not fair. Everyone signs up for it. Second, we have a guarantor. A guarantor is this kind of a thing, where let's say I want to um, uh, get a, a car or buy a house, but I have terrible credit. I've done bad things with my money and all these things, and I've done some bad stuff, and the bank's gonna look at me and say, I'm not gonna give you money. You're for sure gonna not pay me back. And I got to chase you for it and never get my money back. But along comes a billionaire. A, a billionaire comes and he says, I will co-sign for the loan. So if he doesn't pay his debt, you can get it from me. Now, when, the, when, when I don't pay the money back, and the bank says, hey, billionaire, you said you'd pay it, is it unfair to get his money? No, you know why? Because he volunteered for it. He said, you can take the money from me if he doesn't pay. 
It's not considered unfair because he volunteered for it. Now, in the legal system, oftentimes, the, 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 the person who owes the money gets off scot-free. But in the gospel, it doesn't happen. What happens is this. Jesus says, I will pay your debt for you. And we see this in every worldview, by the way. Sinners aren't punished because they're inherently sinners. They're punished for their sins, but those sins pollute them. Jesus says this, I will pay your debt, but the condition of the, you getting the benefit of that is you get to let me change you. So in the legal system, you might get off scot-free if the billionaire pays the money. But in, the, in God's economy, no one gets off scot-free because Jesus says, I will pay your debt for you, but the Holy Spirit will come in you and he will change you so that you change what you want to do. So justice is satisfied because someone pays the debt and mercy is satisfied at the same time. Otherwise, you have a problem. Because if you say that that's not the way it works, that's then mercy happens and God is less than, less than just, or justice happens and God is less than merciful. Either way, there's a compromise, but in the system with the cross, God doesn't compromise justice or mercy. Both men blend together. Quick question. Yeah, very quick. Oh, where, you go. <laughs> yes. So where does it say in the Bible with Jesus itself, him himself says, I'm God and worship me? Where, why does that to say that? See, this is, this, is, this is the problem, I think, with this kind of, this is a good question. I appreciate the, the form of the question. Here's the problem with it, is that it demands that God says what you want him to say. No, You're I, saying, wait, wait, hold on. I want me, what he says. No, yeah, let me, let, me, let, me, let me answer, let me answer. Thank you. You asked me, where does Jesus say, I am God, worship me? John 8, 58, Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 10. I can go on, Mark chapter, chapter 2. Here's why, here's where it says. Because if God, if Jesus said, to the Jews who were there under Roman occupation, I am God, worship me. It yet said, yawn, that's what Caesar says. Caesar says the same thing. He doesn't say that. In John chapter eight, verse 58, he says, I am Yahweh. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name of God. He actually takes God's name onto himself. Mm -hmm. So he says better than I am God, worship me. He says, I am Yahweh. And they took him so seriously that they went to go kill him for it. Then he says, in other parts of the Bible, he says, I send the angels, I send the prophets. Who sends angels? God. Who sends prophets? God. Jesus says he sends angels and he sends prophets. So if he says that, then he's saying, I am God, worship me. The problem is when we wanted him to say, I want him to say it simply, I am God, worship me. We're making him say what we want him to say. He says it very clearly over and over again. So I would say this, if you read the gospels, trying to see, not try to say, where can I show he doesn't say it, but see if he says it. When he says, I am, he takes God's name. When he says, I send the angels, he's taking God's authority. When he says, I send the prophets, he's saying, I take God's authority. When he says, I will raise my body up from the dead, he takes God's power. Mm. If you have God's name, authority, power, then you're God. That's what I would say. Mm, let me, boy, that's good. Well, that's really good. Wow. Now, let, let me just add just uh, one point here. Uh, because I think for, uh, for some of, some of you, uh, if you're anything like me, sometimes you listen to a guy like Abdur and you're like, whoa, that's pretty intense. So let me just, uh, um, it's good. It's good intense though. It's good intensity. Uh, I want more. It's like a Red Bull. Um, I just want more. Um, but it, what's very interesting is if we're going to be really intellectually honest with that, because I think many of us, if you haven't asked that question, you probably will have been asked that question, or at some point you might ask that question, why doesn't Jesus say this? 
Well, as Abdi actually pointed out, there are actually passages in which he's quite explicit about that. But let me just gently push back and say, for those of, who, of us who do ask that question, is that being intellectually honest? For instance, do I go around saying, hi, I'm Nathan Betts, to everybody, to my friends? No, you don't. You don't all, I mean, sometimes by, by way of introduction, but you won't say your title or necessarily your full identity, but that doesn't mean when I don't introduce myself as Nathan Betts, that does not mean I'm Na not Nathan Betts. Are you with me? Are you with me or no? So that's an important point. Now, what's, a guy by the name of Larry Hurtado, if you want to do some digging here, who is a historian, he takes a historical look at this, and he says, let's even work with that. Let's even work with the fact that Jesus never said his own identity, which, as Abdu just said, is not true. He actually does come out and explicitly say who he is. Larry Hurtado takes a historian's view and says, let's work with that. Just look at the, the devotion. The word he uses is devotion. He says, look at the devotion that we see embodied by the people who encounter Jesus, and just that stops the show. Because people who encountered Christ, they worshiped him, you don't worship just another person. You don't even worship the priest. That was deity type stuff. And this historian, a guy who spends his life eating, sleeping, breathing ancient history, says, you just look at the devotion piece and you see that. That's compelling. That has, the most, that has perhaps the most persuasive power just by seeing people who encountered Christ, they gave their lives to him. They went to him for forgiveness of sins. That's deity stuff. That's God stuff. And so that in and of itself should actually help what Abdu is saying here, that yes, actually he does come out, Jesus does come out and say his identity, that he is God, but more than that, when you look at the devotion embodied by the people who followed him and encountered him, that should actually just give the game away. This is God. There's, this is unmistakably Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Thank you. To those of you at the microphone, we will get to you as, as quickly as we can. Here's a question that came through our text system that I have asked. We see on the news horrible images of emaciated children mm. with flies in their mouths and mothers with no milk to give. If you were God, would you do something about it? <clears throat> if I were God, um, it's, an, it's an interesting question because requires me to put myself into a place where I was talking about this with my friend, you know, when he said there's no possible way that good can come from suffering, it requires me to put myself into a couple of places. One, it requires me to put myself into the place where I know not only the past, not only the present, not only the future, but what's called a counterfactual, all future possibilities. So for example, you could have chosen not to come here today. You could have chosen that. And God knows what would have happened had you chosen not to come here today. And a billion other things would have spawned from that because you would have chosen other things too. You could have chosen to eat toast tonight uh, with, your, with your meal instead of uh, spaghetti or whatever it is. And that would have spawned some, uh, some other decisions and it would have gone into a spider web of a billion little things. I have no ability whatsoever to sit in judgment of something that was happened given that I don't have any clue. I don't have a billionth of the knowledge of what would happen if you chose not to come here one decision you make. So if I were God, would I want to do something about it? I think the answer is yes. And here's the, here's the answer, I think, fundamentally. I think the answer is he did. He did. One, I think he sends people into this world to want to care about other people. This is a fallen world, it really is. It's a fallen world based on human agency, based on human freedom. The world is not what it was originally intended to be. God had created a garden where there was no 
real sickness or death or strife or these kind of things for human beings, and then we chose to enter into a world where we become the masters of the universe, and then we got what we wanted, a world that we run, and it becomes what it, what it is. Now, that's cold comfort to somebody who's actually suffering in this sense. So there's a logical part of this, but then there's also the existential part of it. I can't sit in judgment of a God who knows everything that I have no ability to know whatsoever, because it could be that God could allow something for a greater possible good. That's a logical answer, but it's not a comforting answer at all, unless God actually did do something specific. One, I think he works through people. I think he does work through people to provide aid and provide comfort. But two, there's an ultimate end and an ultimate good to all of this. I trust that. Why do I trust that an emaciated child who is suffering through these things? And by the way, I don't say this in a vacuum. I don't say this as a person who's never suffered. I don't. And I know you're not hearing this in a vacuum either. You're hearing this as someone who has suffered. Mm. I know it to varying degrees. Some a little, some almost unbearably. I know that. But I trust in the midst of my own suffering, or when I see suffering there, that there's going to be a time, the Bible says, where he will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Mm. You know what that means? It doesn't mean he like, does the wand like this and everyone's tears dry up suddenly. It means he walks right up to you, puts his thumb on your cheek, and does that directly to you, directly to you. And there's gonna be a time when all that gets redeemed, and that's but a vapor. The gospel says it's but a vapor compared to the, uh, the heaven that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered even to the heart of man that which God has prepared for those who love him. So there is a time coming, but those realities exist right now. Those harsh realities exist right now, which means this. We can look and say, if I were God, would I do something? And the answer is he has done something, and maybe one of the things he's done is sent you to help them. I realize there are people in this room who are asking that question who do help people on a daily basis, and it begins to weigh on you. One of our colleagues, Naomi Zacharias, helps to run our Wellspring International part of our ministry, where she goes in and she helps burn victims, people who are through acid attacks or other burnings. She helps them to get healed, and she sees orphans and people in the sex industry who are being trafficked and enslaved, and sometimes it breaks her heart. But they have a hope because they know that there's something beyond this world. You know what's interesting about uh, uh, sociologically across the most grief-stricken parts of the world. Belief in God does not go down when people suffer. Belief in God goes down when people have too much. Because there's a hope, I think, pain. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God speaks to us in our conscience. He whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And he's a God who is not alien to pain. He knows what pain is. A pantheist would tell you pain is an illusion. Others would tell you pain is a test. Others would tell you pain is meaningless. The gospel tells you pain is so real that the God of all reality experiences it himself so that one day you won't have to. Hmm. We, we still struggle with those questions, yeah. Sir, you've been so patient. Thank you for doing that. And <laughs> no you, have so, you, have a, you have a beautiful smile. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad you guys came. I wish Ravi was here. So do I. <laughs> yes, we all do. Um, my question is, uh, what helped you find God, and uh, what made him real for you, not in your mind, but in your heart? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, may I ask your name? Josh. Josh. Oh, what a good question. Thank you. Uh, really admire, actually, just 
the courage to actually ask that question. I think it's a question that all of us uh, have asked, I certainly have asked. I think for me, uh, my story is that I was born and raised in a Christian home, but uh, that didn't mean I was a Christian. I actually knew how to do church very well, but I didn't actually know Christ. It was in my early high school years when I encountered Christ for the first time. And uh, at that point, I remember I was uh, in a church service, it was in a youth service, and I was asking some of the big questions. Now, I wouldn't have synthesized them in this way back then, but really the questions I was asking was, one, uh, what's the meaning of my life? Where do I find purpose? Do I matter? Those are the questions I was asking, and I was uh, beginning to explore the party scene. I, was, I gained a lot of my identity from sport, competitive sport at the time. I was asking these big questions. For me, when I actually looked across the different options through which I could obtain meaning uh, and significance, I found that alone in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, not only intellectually, and so that it, part, of, part of that question is, part of the meaning question is, well, what makes it true? Uh, and that's a massive question. When we're asking that question, uh, speaking, you know, since you asked for Robbie Zacharias, by the way, we all wish he was here, but he's not. So, but let me actually cite a grid that he gives as to how we can obtain, uh, how we can know something to be true. He talks about, okay, what makes up a true worldview, the lens through which you view the world and make sense of reality. He looks at first logical consistency, then empirical uh, adequacy, and then he looks at experiential relevance. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Logical consistency, uh, give, um, let me give it to you shorthand. Logical consistency effectively means when you pull all the beliefs that you hold together in your life, do they all cohere? Is there consistency? Or is there some contradictory elements to what you believe and how you live? What you believe doesn't match up to how you live. If there's a disconnect there, that box of logical consistency, you cannot tick that. And therefore, well, there might be some flaws in the trustworthiness of your system of belief, your faith, whether it's a faith or no faith, whether you believe in God, a plurality of gods, or believe in no God, you still actually view, you have a worldview. So that's one question. The next question is empirical adequacy. And what that means is the observations that we have in our world. When I look back, when I was a teenager searching, I had to make sense of, look, there's this, there's this brokenness inside of me not only am I looking for something that's going to make sense of it, but who could actually deal with it? And as I looked across the different options, when I looked to sport, when I looked to even the party scene, they could give me some sense of meaning, but it wasn't an everlasting meaning. See, the things in this world can give us some meaning and significance. Christianity does not say anything against that. What it says is those things won't last. They don't have that long-lasting, outlive, outlive you type of power. You look at logical inconsistency, then you look at empirical adequacy, the observations of this world, that the world can be beautiful, but it's also, there's full of disorder, there's brokenness, there's a sense of wrongness, not only outside, but inside. What system of belief best makes sense of that? Christianity looks at the world, and I, from my understanding, it best made sense of it. But the experiential relevance, this comes down to your point. This is where I found Christianity, and particularly the person of Jesus Christ, so beautiful and attractive to what I was looking for, and especially trustworthy. It's that when he looks at 
the human problem of the human heart. He identifies it that, yes, there's evil in the human heart. There's evil outside. But the problem is not that we need to know more, that we need education, that we need uh, socioeconomic class adjustment, that we need to make more money, we need better friends. Then the issue is that actually there's something wrong in the human heart, and it's not that actually we need to be made better, but that we need to be made alive. And he's the only one. Other worldviews will maybe identify the problem, that there is evil, that there's wrong, but the solution is you need to just get better. You need to figure it out. It's on you to figure it out. Jesus Christ is the only one, when I investigated his claims, he was the only one who said, yes, there is a problem, but I've come to you, and I've come to help you. I've paid the price. I offer you forgiveness. I offer you this grace, this grace that heals, heals me from the pain in my life. It illuminates because I'm blind and I need to be made to see, and it forgives me because I'm broken and I need forgiveness. That's, those are the words of St. Augustine, one of the early church Amen. fathers. And so I think that's just a start to how I found the significance and meaning in my life, not because of who I am or what I do, but because of who I am is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ who offers me that forgiveness and grace. Thank you very much Thanks. for that, Nathan. Well done. Um, we have a young woman here. She's going to ask a question just before she does. Uh, if you have further questions, you haven't texted in a question, you haven't come to the mic, and you can still feel free to do that. Uh, myself and Ashwin, some of us will be here at the front following our presentation, and you can come and speak to us personally. It's really important to us that if you have something burning in your heart that you uh, are able to ask that tonight. And, and it, won't be, it doesn't have to be as intense as when we were exchanging, he's from the Middle East, I'm from the Middle East, we get that way, we understand each other uh, in terms of the intensity. You won't always be treated intensely, but we're from the Middle East, we get each other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with this young woman. Can I ask you what your name is? Uh, my name is Amy. Amy, you have a question. Yeah. Um, the friend that you spoke about at the beginning who had encountered yeah. the, lo the pain and the disappointment of his mother dying, yeah. um, how, and you walked him through that, how do you walk a child through that, a child who has like walked through disappointment or a loss or just can't really understand why God didn't do something for them? It's a great question. You know, uh, it's interesting. Children often ask the questions with brutal honesty because they're not afraid of what you think. Um, and they're not afraid to be considered to be a doubter. They don't even know what that word means, right? Um, others might say, I don't want to ask this question because my church members might think I'm a doubter of some kind or uh, someone who's more skeptical um, might not care, but they have friendships they have to take care of. Children are so forthright about it, but oftentimes they can be closed about it as well. I think the best thing an adult can do when walking a child through serious disappointment or serious hurt is to be honest with the child about your lack of understanding yourself about what God is doing in a particular moment. Um, someone once said this, the worst thing you can say to someone whose family member has died or who's going through a tough patch in life is say, God works in mysterious ways. I, I can't think of anything less comforting <laughs> um, other than get over it tough. Which by the way is the other option, right? I mean, there's only two options. Ah, there's no meaning to it whatsoever or there's something about it. There's not really no middle option to it. Make whatever meaning you make out of it, well, good luck with that, right? Um, it's funny because I often use Bible verses and some stories to talk about this. 
You recall the story in the Gospels where Jesus actually multiplies the fish and the loaves, and he gives people what they want, and they're not disappointed even in the slightest bit. They actually really got a lot of stuff. And then they follow him around, and they don't follow him around for the hard teachings, for the things that are really hard, like you need to change your life, you need to change who you are. They don't follow him around for that. They follow him around for the bread and for the fish, and he turns to them and he says, you're not following me for the real meat, you're following me for the fish and for the bread. And they get disappointed in him, and they walk away. Then he turns to Peter and to the disciples, he's like, you gonna walk away too? Peter's response is classic, and it's good. He says, where else are we gonna go? You have the words of life. So there's only two choices, meaninglessness or something more. And Jesus offers the something more. So I often, I've shared that with kids who have walked through a very difficult time, is that I don't know all the answers. I don't know why this happened. I don't pretend to know. We can pray and think it through. Now sometimes with a child, depending on their age, and their sophistication levels, because they're various and late bloomers and all these kind of things, um, you can speak to them about some things. I remember one time my son was really scared. You know how kids just get scared? There's, I remember when you were a kid and you were in your room and you heard a noise and you thought for sure there's a monster in your closet? Um, you just get scared for some reason. Well, I heard my son kind of crying upstairs when he was really young, like five years old. And I walked upstairs and I said, Baba, what's, what's the matter? What's the matter? He said, um, I'm scared, I'm scared, Baba. And I said, well, what do we do when we're scared? He said, I know you say we pray, but I don't hear a voice back. So how do I know God's even there? So what do you, how do you answer a five-year-old on that one, right? Um, so I said, well, um, do you think I have thoughts? He said, yeah. I said, can you hear my thoughts without me telling you? No. Can you smell them? No. Can you touch them? No. Can you taste them? No. But I have them, right? He said, yeah. I said, you have enough reason to believe I have thoughts, even though you don't have every reason to believe I have thoughts. He said, I see where you're going with this. And, you know, he's a pretty sophisticated kid. Um, I said, so God is like that. There's enough reason to believe in him, even though you don't have complete reasons to know everything about him. Can we trust in what we do know? It's what we don't know? He said, yeah, can we pray? Now that's an easy situation, but let's say it's a harder one. You walk through the, with the kid with empathy. You're there with the child as much as you possibly can be. There's a good little book called, I think like Brian and the Very, Very Bad Day. It talks about God in suffering for little, for little kids. But then you can point out to some things, the hope we have now for what will come later and what is even being done right now. And then eventually, because of the honesty and because of the compassion, the child will grow in maturity to understand it. It's not a guarantee. There's no guarantees in this. But there are ways you can point to the offerings that Jesus gives because no one else offers you anything else. If there's just a blind, pitiless, indifferent universe, you can tell the kid, tough, get over it. Or you can have the compassion, the human compassion, coupled with the transcendent. Amy, were, were you that child, or, or were you the mother of a child? Uh, no. Okay. That happened to me just once. I wanted to make sure that I know how to do it. If... Yeah, that happened to me once, and all I did was cry with the child. That's all we did is cry together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, we're going to close in about 15 minutes, so make your way. We've got a few here. Make your way down to the aisle. Another texted question. How do you counter the argument, we care about others, because from an evolutionary point of view, it is the best way for us to survive as a society. Um, well, uh, the question's put very interestingly. Um, we don't, so we care about others. When we ask, we say the question, we care. Are we making a moral statement or a survivability statement? You see, um, 
one could easily say that cheetahs care for their young. Have you ever seen how, documentaries on cheetahs and leopards? The mother stays with the child the whole time until it's grown. And then when it's gone, it actually sort of quote-unquote mourns the child's loss. But does the cheetah actually really care for the child? Is it doing something moral? When a, when a lion murders a gazelle, is it really murder? Or is it just killing a gazelle for food? We don't morally blame lions for killing gazelles. Sharks, some sharks propagate by forcible copulation, but we don't call it rape. There's no moral category to that. Why is there a moral category to bad things humans do and good things humans do? They do it, it's survivability. You could say that's evolution. We do it, it's evolution too? No, we ascribe a moral category to it. So if someone says we care about human beings because of evolution, Michael Ruse would say this, that morality is an illusion foisted upon you to get you to be a, by your genes to get you to be a social cooperator. But let's not, not make any mistakes. It's not really moral. It's just survivability. Now, you can believe that if you want to, but the reality of that then becomes this. Then morality is arbitrary because, as Michael Ruse would say and others would say, if you reround the evolutionary tape and played it back again, it would end up differently so that certain things would be moral for us because they help us survive, like subjugating the weak. In fact, let me just say this. I know this is a simplistic way to put this, okay? But understand this. Evolution is based on the idea that certain parts of a species will differentiate from others because, and they will succeed and bring more offspring because they either subjugate the other parts of the species or they outcompete that, 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 that species uh, be, uh, for resources. So a less advanced part of your species will actually die out and you will start to evolve and get better and better. In other words, evolution necessarily works based on strength and weakness. As human beings, we don't do that. Darwin actually pointed out this in Descent of Man when he says human beings are the only species that cares for the sick and those who are infirm or even mentally infirm. And he says this, anyone who's ever attended the breeding of dogs knows that this is injurious to the race of man. We shouldn't evolutionarily care for our sick and injured. Cheetahs don't do that. Monkeys might do that for a short period of time, but after a while they become a burden on the troop and they eliminate them. We don't call them immoral. But when we do it, all of us know this. When we eliminate the sick and the injured amongst our group, and no one in this room is okay with that, I trust that. That would be evolutionarily expedient, but it wouldn't be moral. Okay. Young man over here. Some would say that Christians use religion as a crutch, that in reality, life really is meaningless. There's no value, there's no purpose, there's no significance, and that we're just making something up to make ourselves feel better. We want that, so we, we just devise something. Um, how would you respond to that? Yep. Great question. May I ask your name? Aiden. Aiden, great question. Um, let me start by just uh, using, you know, using that word crutch. I think it's helpful, and uh, th I don't mean this to be glib at all. But when I've been asked that, you know, my friends have said that to me, uh, friends who are not Christian, and they're just saying it in a you know, similar way to you, like just being very honest about it, saying, you know, you know, you have, you know, I think you might be using, you know, this God thing to be a crutch. What I have come to think is that there's a major sense in which we all need a crutch. We all need something to lean on. We all need something that is going to help us stand. We all need something that is going to enable us to walk through this world and live well. The question is not 
Christians are the only ones who have crutches. I would suggest everybody has a crutch in terms of the function of that crutch to help us live, to find meaning, to find significance. The question is not whether or not everybody has a crutch. Everybody does. The question is, is it a trustworthy, is it a meaningful crutch? So for Christians, then, so that's the first part. The second part is, well, you know, just you're using this crutch for significance, but it's just, you know, you, you know other people don't need that. We don't need that. Here we come back full circle to the question of truth. There's a sense in which, you know, I remember talking to someone and saying, hey, look, um, you need God to enjoy things, to find, you know, beauty. Uh, I just enjoy an ice cream just because it's an ice cream and it tastes good. I don't need God for that. I would say, okay, you know, I, I can work with that to a certain degree. But when we, have, when we come to the big questions of life, making sense of things, making sense of why we are here, that's where I would say, okay, we have to ask the big questions. What in this life gives me the meaning? In other words, what is trustworthy? Now, again, as I just mentioned to a friend a few moments ago, when we're asking the question of meaning, we're asking the question of truth. Well, what, what then is truth? Well, giving you a shorthand version of truth, truth is that which corresponds to reality. And if we're going to ask the question of truth and meaning, then we have to ask the question, what best explains this world and what best explains me? And when you look to the human being, what it means to be us, what it means to be human, it's my understanding from my studies, from my observations, that when I look to the Christian understanding, the scriptural understanding of what it means to be human, the Christian understanding best describes what it means to be me. And what do I, what do I mean by that? I mean that when you look to the very beginning, when God, the narrative of God creating male and female, the scriptures tell us this beautiful and just immense language of God creating us in his image, in his likeness. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to be made in the image of God? Have you ever asked that? Well, fundamentally, it means first to be made in the image of God. The understanding, just from, you know, coming from a theological, the study of God type understanding, it means first, at base level, to be made in God's image means we're not God. We are made in his likeness. And that right there is actually very controversial because the world in which we live right now tells you, no, actually, you are. You are the boss. We are very self-centered. When everything shakes at the end, we are actually very self-centered people. But the Bible actually t reminds me, actually, no, actually, it's bigger than just you. It's bigger than just me. You are made in the image of God, and that means fundamentally we are not God. Two, being made in the image of God means we are accountable, we are responsible to him. The, the, the idea of being made in the image of God for the people back in the ancient Near East, when they would have heard this language of being made in the image of God, it conjured up the idea of authority and responsibility because in the ancient Near Eastern world, and, and by the way, we still use this even today in our society, images corresponded to authority and accountability. So when you saw the image or inscription of a ruler in a certain territory, you knew that the buck stopped with that person. Okay, you see the image of the king in this land. Okay, the king, that's, that's the person who I report to here. This is why, let me just import, uh, cite this, it's very important. This question is actually raised in the Gospels, in the, in the biographical accounts of Jesus Christ. People come, these Pharisees and Herodians, people who are, one, theologically obnoxious, and then two, politically obnoxious. They come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, tell me, 
Here's a coin. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The person, by the way, at that point, politically, he was in charge. The buck stopped with Caesar. They give him this coin because Jesus asked for the coin. And what's the question Jesus asked them? He asked them whose image, whose image is on this coin? And I want to suggest to you that that, wasn't, that didn't wash over them. They knew what images meant. They knew the weightiness, the enormity of image. And they looked at it. And Jesus said, whose image is this? They say, Caesar's. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And the narrative ends just by the narrator saying, and they marveled. Now, now we get into a bit of a contentious bit because many people would say, they, you know, they missed it, they missed what he was saying. I want to suggest to you that there are many people in that audience that were marveling because they knew the inference that was being drawn there, because they knew the authority, the accountability that came with image so to be made in the image of God, when I looked at the Christian understanding of what it means to be human, to be me, to be you, to live in this world and find meaning, the Christian understanding best explains who I am when I look to being made in the image of God, that this is rooted in reality. Being made in the image of God fundamentally means, one, I'm not God. Two, I'm responsible to him. But three, it has this intimate language of I have the capacity to relate to God. I'll never forget, actually, we, we were, uh, a few of us were at uh, UC Berkeley campus last year, and I remember someone asking me, what's the difference between uh, me and being an animal? How's that for a question? Now, you only get asked these questions in California. Uh, now, there's no offense to my friends in California, but here, here's the thing, and actually many people have asked this question. The difference is we have the capacity to relate to God. We are the only ones who have been made in his image. And so I want to suggest to you, just by looking at that massive, immense understanding of being made in the image of God, that gives a starting point to finding meaning in this world. That one, we are not God. And that makes sense of the reality in which I live. Two, we are responsible to him. But three, we have the unique capability, capacity to relate to this God. There's nothing like that. Nathan, that's good can I just add a two-minute, uh, maybe a 30-second addendum? Because I know we're running late on this 30-second addendum. When someone says people made uh, up God as a crutch to get through life, that's not an argument, it's a claim. Hmm. An argument is a set of propositions that logically lead to a conclusion. It's not an argument, it's a claim. So my response to that is, so? <laughs> and what? You believe that, that doesn't mean it's true. Uh, and Nathan said, Everyone's got a crutch. You know what most people's crutch looks like? This. <laughs> so everyone's got a crutch. Everyone's got one. Does it, if it were the case that I needed God to get me through life, does that mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead? How does that follow? He rose from the dead. And therefore his resurrection, his empty tomb, is quite an interestingly shaped crutch. I'm fine with that. Just because I need my parents to get me through life when I'm a kid doesn't mean that they don't exist. Right. Yeah. So that's what I would say. It's not an argument, it's a claim, and I think it doesn't do anything to undermine the empirical adequacy of the Christian faith. We're in the wrap-up phase. We have three more folks. Uh, so we're going to do three minutes each, okay? All right, Let's To do presenters <laughs> and to questions. And by the way, if you have a question again, uh, we're going to be here at the front. You can also uh, text faith at CS Church. At 293-403-293-3900, Faith, and ask the question online, and somebody will get back to you, because it's important to answer your questions. So one, two, three, three minutes each. Go. All right, let's do it. Okay. So I understand uh, that every person 
is of infinite worth to God. And I guess my concern is people who have grown up in extremely difficult circumstances, live in a poor part of the world, they're grow up in abusive uh, situations, never been shown any love, never heard about God, never heard about Jesus, maybe get to early adulthood, you know, in their 20s, themselves act cruelly to others because that's all they've ever known. So they've committed a lot of sins. Mm. So when this person dies, do, will they have an opportunity to accept or reject Christ? They've never heard of him. And is there a biblical support for that, that every person will have Thank that you. opportunity? You want to go for it? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. You know, it's a competition now, three minutes. So I'm going to try to make this fast, and maybe if I can, I can give Abdu some time to actually complete this one. What I would say is I think one of the issues here, and this is a very important question, as you can tell just by listening, uh, it's not only intellectual, it's also there's an emotional piece to this. It's a real on-the-ground question. Uh, we appreciate that. We wrestle with these issues. These are real questions. Uh, what I would say is one of the issues is unfairness. That look, if, if there are these people in remote villages that would have never heard or they've gone through uh, extremely horrible and trying situations, uh, well, in the end, will they have an opportunity? What we do know this, I think what we have to understand and what can be helpful here is to actually think of this in light of who we know God to be. That the overarching uh, picture of this God that we see painted for us in the scriptures and throughout history is this God who is good, who is just, who is fair. So let me just go to the very end of your question, which is, is there biblical information for this? The Christian response says that there's complexity here. We don't know the answer to every question, but we do know the end, no one will be saying when they see God in all his glory, you were unjust. This was not fair. The opposite is true. Revelation, which is a letter to churches, it's the last book of the Bible, but it gives us metaphors and images and pictures of reality of what the end will look like. What we hear are the words of people. When they see God in all his glory, they say the words, just and true are your ways. Those words echo throughout the book of Revelation. What does that mean? It means that there's some, there, in terms of the fine print now, we, there, there's, there's some questions that we might not be able to answer, but we do know the end. The end result is us saying, just and true are your ways. God is just and fair. And what we'll know in the end is just that. When we see God, he is just, he is true. The Bible says it's appointed to men once to die and then the judgment. That's what it says. Now the question is, what does that mean exactly? Because God is also the God of, I think, the infinitesimal. Not this God of the big, but sometimes the God of the minute. And there might be a time, and I can tell you I have numerous stories, numerous stories from people who will tell you, they told me, they came to faith having never heard the gospel, but God broke into a dream or to a vision for them. So we don't have the, we, God can't do it just through us. Not he's limited to our voices. God can do it without us, but he gets to use, we, we get to be used by him to proclaim his message. But I've seen people who never heard of him actually tell me they have now heard of him because he actually broke in in some way and got them uh, to, uh, to see who he really is. But also there's this possibility that, you know, the Bible suggests that people will be judged by the light to which they've been given. So there's different rewards in heaven, different punishments in hell, and we see that difference there. But people are judged by the light according to what they've been given. Now. If they've given a little light, they get judged according to that light. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't the only way. It still means he's the only way. But here's the light I think every human being has. One, you're not perfect and you're a sinner. 
Two, you can't be your own solution. And three, you need someone else to solve it for you. I don't care what, it seems to me that despite all of our circumstances, no matter how bad they can be, we sort of know these fundamental truths. And those who can't know them, I think are judged according to their knowledge. But we, almost all of us know, I'm a sinner, I can't save me, I need someone to save me. And if they have a hope, Job says, yet though he slay me, still I will trust in him, for I know my Redeemer lives. He had no idea Christ was coming, yet he was considered righteous. So I think if you acknowledge your sin, and you know you need someone else to save you, and you know that somehow that price will be paid, who knows what that's gonna be in the end, and you'll be judged according to that light, but he looked forward to a redeemer. Abraham looked forward to Jesus' day and was glad, and we see that throughout the scriptures. I think everyone has that in, inside them, and it could be at the moment right before death that Jesus breaks in and says, look what I did for you. He says that to his disciples in John chapter 20, shalom alechem, when he talks about his own flesh being pierced. Maybe he'll say, see what I did, and they'll say, thank you so much, and then they'll be in heaven. I don't know, but that's at least a possibility. Thank you. Uh, this uh, gentleman here. In the Bible, um, sorry, in the Bible, when I, when I read the Old Testament, um, it shows God commands the Israelites to go about and basically exterminate a lot of races. Um, and yet, come the New Testament, God says, you know, love your enemies. There's nothing about extermination. There's nothing about murder. How do you, how do you put those two pieces together? Because it is still the triune God from the Old Testament to the New Excellent question. Um, got this yesterday, in fact. A uh, couple of things on this very quickly, if I can. You, you'd ask an enormous question that three minutes won't do justice to. However, <laughs> I can tell you there's a couple of books I would recommend to you. One specifically is a book by a guy named Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster? And he goes to the exact question you just, answer, you just asked. So here's what I would say. God doesn't actually exterminate races in the Old Testament. It looks like he does, but if you understand the way in which the, Bibli the, the Bible uses language, Middle Eastern... Um, ancient Near East uh, idioms, the way they spoke, was often over the top, but it's given, it gives a certain um, message to it. So, for example, Joshua is commanded to kill all the Canaanites, leave nothing alive that breathes, kill every man, woman, and child. And then the Bible says, and Joshua did all that was commanded. But then, a few verses later, there's Canaanites running around. Well, wait a minute. If he did all that's commanded, but there's Canaanites running around, how did he kill everybody, but they're still around? Because the, in the context, what it's saying is drive out the Canaanite way of life. Why? Because they committed child sacrifices, because they had temple prostitution, because they were constantly raiding the Hebrews, the, the Israelites. They were constantly raiding their parties. So he said drive out their way of life. That's the, what's going on there. And he's judging people for their evil actions. Now you see that over and over again. Why does he do that? Because the Hebrews, the Israelites, are the people through whom the Messiah would come. So if he protects that nation, he protects the Messiah, he protects his promise to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the world, not some, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So he protects them by driving out evil ways of life, and then the Messiah comes, not for the Israelites only, but for the whole world. That sounds like an excellent book. How do you spell that author's last name? C-O-P-A-N. C-O-P-A-N? Yep. Yeah, if you, if you want to come and see me after, it sounds like an excellent book. Last question. Rosemary, is that you? That's me. I can't see you. You're going to be the first to talk to Abdu uh, following our presentation, and I know you'll understand. Last question, sir. Hello, sir. Hello. My question for Abdul, since I heard your uh, presentation or speech. Yeah. So, like, if I was to think, like, about what you said, you're trying to promote that Christianity, it's the only solution for someone to be in a lively heaven, mm -hmm. according to your speech. If I was going to believe it, how could you explain it with so many parties of Christianity out there and each party contradict 
or in fact they do have uh, so much differences and how they believe in God or Jesus Christ like Jehovah Witnesses, Angelican, Mormon or whatever you call it. When I see an Islamic way with all the differences they have in translations, they do believe, all the Muslims I assume I believe, they believe in the unity of one God and the prophet and messenger and they do fight or they misunderstand or the explanation. So how could you like justify as a Christianity under one banner when the Christianity itself divided into so many pieces? And the so second part I like to know, if God was fair and just, mm -hmm. as you said, yeah. and he decided to choose a son to represent him on earth, why didn't he represent the girl too? Like, to be fair, like, you know, half of humanity are women, so I believe, you know, one of each... I love that question. <laughs> let, me, let me answer it, because time runs short. It's a great, two, two great questions. Uh, the first question was, if Christianity is so divided and so split, how could it be the answer? Um, I think this is, a, this is an issue with every single religion in the world. As you probably know, there are 80 sects of Islam that are known, 80 different sects. You have the Alawi, you have Shia, you have the Sunni, you have the Twelvers, the Seveners, you have the Wahhabis, you have the various people, you have the Ahmadis. Ahmadis, for example, you mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses, I would say, are not actually Christians because they actually specifically re- and mistranslate in their translation the Bible to justify their false theology. So it's not like they're taking the Bible and saying, hmm, I view it this way. They actually mistranslate add words to it in order to get their own versions of, the, uh, of what they think is the case out of there. Meanwhile, the text of the Bible remains the same and they intentionally go and they add words to it. And you can compare and you can see, you added words. Here, why? How do I know that? I have the original. Um, so the fact that there's so many differences in denominations doesn't do anything to undermine things because the vast majority of the denominations, in fact, I would say all Christian denominations, by definition of the name, are people who follow Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if you follow Christ, what is the mere Christianity? You know, you pointed out that Muslims differ on a lot of things, but they have a baseline they, they all agree on. I would say the exact same thing about Christians. They believe this, Jesus is God the Son incarnate. There's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was incarnate in Jesus. He lived a life we couldn't live a perfection, so he had no debts of his own to pay, so he could pay mine. If he had his own debts to pay, he can't pay mine. He's got to pay his own. He doesn't have it. He's perfect. And so he dies on a cross to pay my debts for me and then rises from the dead. That's mere Christianity. Paul says in the Bible, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's it. Everything else is because human beings, being imperfect, they've done it with Islam, they've done it with Hinduism, they've done it with Christianity they start to actually do a little bit of, you know, interpreting things and saying, well, I, I, I see this as being important, or I see this as being important. And some go so far because they want to aggrandize themselves, they say, I'm going to change everything. Joseph Smith did that with Mormonism, and Charles Taze Russell and Rutherford, and all these guys, they did it with Jehovah's Witnesses. They went further than just saying, I don't understand this, but I'm going to interpret it a certain way. We see this in Islam. There's many, many different sects. In fact, in the early history of Islam, there was a discussion. Is the Quran created or is it uncreated? Was it always with God or was it something that God created? And if there was such a dispute about this that the people who said one area of it, who, who had come on one side, were killed by the other ones. Not over political issues, not over whose land this is, but over this issue of Tawheed. They were disputing about what even Tawheed means, a fundamental principle of Islam. That's actually history. The Mutazilis and the Kharijites, they actually killed each other over this issue, over a theological claim. Does that disprove Islam? No. But does it say that there's differences? Of course. 
I think all of them have to deal with this. So the, the issue is mere Christianity. What I spoke about here, and what I think is the most important part is this. There are different expressions. In other words, there's unity of essentials, but there's diversity of expression. So there's unity in the essentials, that there is one God, existent in three persons. Jesus is the Savior. He died and rose again. That's the thing all of them agree on, and there's no difference on that. When do you get baptized? Uh, do you speak in tongues? Um, when should this or this happen? Is it free will or is it God's sovereignty? These are issues we're hashing out. But all that disagreement does nothing to undermine the historical fact of the death of, death of Jesus and his resurrection and what that means. Second question was something else, and I'm trying to remember what it is. Oh, women, women. I love that you brought this up. I actually love that you brought this up. Because The Bible says, in his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, what does that mean? That means that a male bears something of God's image. There's something about, he reflects the divine in his maleness. A female reflects something of the divine in her femaleness. That actually transposes itself throughout the entirety of the Bible. There is not one woman prophet in Islam, not a single one. There are some women who are considered to be honorable, like Zainab and, and, uh, and if you're a Sunni, Aisha, uh, if you're a Shia, not so much. Um, uh, so there's a lot of differences there about the women that are exalted, but not a single prophet among them. Deborah was a judge over men. There were prophetesses within the pages of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And in fact, who are the first people to see the most important miracle since creation? The first witnesses to the risen Jesus were women. And then Jesus is talking to Martha and Mary, and he comes to their house. And women weren't allowed an education back then. But Martha is busy doing all the work, trying to prepare and make the food and doing quote-unquote women's work. And Mary sits down next to her, next to Jesus, at his feet. You know what that means in the Bible? When someone sits at your feet, it means they are your pupil. It's not a derogatory term, it's actually an honorific. It means you're sitting at the feet of a master. Martha wants to say, this is scandalous. My sister is not in her rightful place. She's not doing women's work. Jesus, tell her to come and help me. And Jesus says, she has chosen what is better. She has chosen an education and it will not be taken from her. From education, to being prophetesses, to being judges over men, to being the witnesses to the greatest thing in the history of the world, women are the ones. So I don't think Bible's unfair.